endocannabinoid system, CBD. anandamide, endocannabinoid deficiency, THC, CBG, cannabis, the bliss molecule. The American CBD. Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine welcomes you to AGM Live. Interviews with physicians on the front lines of endocannabinoid medicine and the scientists behind the industry's top research trials. Can you talk about some of the research out there and how it's conducted regarding exploring the effects of CBD? Was this the first clinical trial anywhere to explore the relationship between cannabis and autism? Can you talk a little bit about what your experience was when you were working with those patients and trying to find decent or adequate treatment options for them and what your limitations might have been? On today's episode... What will be really important with the psychedelics is to have quality registries to follow up how patients go, both from an efficacy, safety and also durability of the effect. Now, we can't mandate that in law, but we hope that groups of psychiatrists and psychologists who are delivering these therapies get together and accept that recording and communicating the outcomes is so important. Hello, this is Larry Luxner reporting for AGM Live from the Insight 2023 conference in Berlin. We're talking with Dr. John Skerritt, Australia's retired Deputy Secretary of Health and currently a professor of medicine at Melbourne and Sydney universities. Dr. Skerritt spoke on regulating psychedelic therapy as a medicine, the evolving Australian experience. Dr. Skerritt, among other things, led the development of Australia's medicinal cannabis program, which started in 2016. Originally trained in neuro and psychopharmacology in Australia and the U.S., he's worked in many areas of government, and for the last 10 years, he headed the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or TGA, which is Australia's equivalent of the FDA. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Yes, hello, Larry. It's so good to talk with you. So, uh, Australia is a world leader, a pioneer when it comes to uh, psychedelics as uh, as drugs, as therapy. Um Australia, as I understand, is the world's first country to downregulate psychedelics. Can you explain how this came about and why Australia? So what we did was uh, move psychedelics from being forbidden or prohibited drugs onto a controlled drug schedule. So the same way that opiates for the treatment of pain are now regulated. And what it actually did was recognise psychedelics as medicines rather than as prohibited drugs. That was a breakthrough in law, but it has enabled access to patients to those medicines outside of clinical trials. Clinical trials continue, but now it enables patients to receive these products as therapy. And as I understand, this change took effect on July 1st. So this is a very recent development, but it was about two years in the, in the making, right? It was more than two years in the making. There was extensive public consultation and consultation with healthcare professionals about it. And there was a wide range of views, uh, many supportive, a uh, number opposed. And I think that still remains the case. But it's an option, uh, and there are quite significant controls. So it's not just a case of buying a pill and taking it home. These uh, th- th- these um, psychedelics are restricted to uh, psilocybin when it's used for uh, treatment-resistant depression, uh, as well as MDA when it's used for post-traumatic stress disorder, correct? Uh, yes, they're restricted to those particular uses or indications, to use a medical term, and they're also uh, only able to be prescribed by approved psychiatrists who have been through a certain training and have become fellows of a college of psychiatry and have received approval from both a medical research ethics committee as well as from TGA itself. So there's many steps before a psychiatrist in conjunction with psychologists and a care team, can actually use these products. And could you explain briefly what the difference between Schedule 8 and Schedule 9 is? 
So Schedule 9 in Australia is a little bit like Schedule 1 in the US. In other words, they're drugs that uh, have no therapeutic value and are generally uh, drugs of addiction sold on the dark market, uh, sold illegally. Schedule 8 are drugs that may cause dependence uh, but are seen to have a a therapeutic benefit. And the other example that I gave earlier are things like opiates. Uh, We know that for treatment of severe pain, opiates are, are tremendously effective, but we also know they have to be used carefully. And you can say the same with psychedelics, they have to be used carefully. And where does cannabis fall in this uh, schedule? So at the moment, uh, cannabis, uh, products with THC in them, are Schedule 8 in Australia. Products that are essentially CBD, cannabidiol only, are either Schedule 4, in other words, on prescription, or if they're a lower dose, they can be uh, sold by a pharmacist, Schedule 3. I see. So uh, given that you led the development of the medical cannabis program in Australia, um, you indicated that uh, there are some lessons to be learned from that experience. Uh, What are those lessons and what would you hope to avoid doing again? Well, there are a number of lessons. I guess the first is that even though several hundred thousand people have received legal medicinal cannabis prescriptions, there's been very little follow-up of whether the drugs, the cannabis drugs, have been effective or safe other than some patient surveys and so forth, and we know that they can be misleading. So what will be really important with the psychedelics is to have quality registries uh, to follow up how patients go, both from an efficacy, safety, and also durability of the effect. Now, we can't mandate that in law, but we hope that groups of psychiatrists and psychologists who are delivering these therapies get together and accept that recording and communicating the outcomes is so important. There are some other lessons to be learnt too from uh, the cannabis experience. There were a number of rogue clinics that started up and also advertised the products directly to the public, even though that was illegal. There were also promotion of cannabis products for indications uh, that were quite inappropriate and for which there was no evidence of cannabis having an effect. Again, in the case of psychedelics, that's been limited to very specific uh, Indications and also linked to a treatment paradigm. So we believe the controls are tighter. It will mean that there will be more approvals to go through before you can prescribe the psychedelics. But we've also created a system where they don't have to be patient by patient. So once a clinic or a particular psychiatrist has the authorization, they don't have to come back and get patient by patient approvals. I see. Now, during the uh, application, during the public consultation, you indicated that there were over 13,000 public submissions and that uh, you commissioned an independent expert panel on the therapeutic value, the benefits and the risk. But then you changed your mind. Can you explain uh, why that happened and then uh, why you got further public consultation after that? Well, all these changes of scheduling do require public consultation. Uh, It's uh, pretty important because access to medicines, decisions about whether a medicine is available at all or whether it needs to be from a doctor or can be available from a pharmacy or a supermarket, affect everyone's lives. And so the law requires there to be public consultations, and that also involves healthcare professionals, but any member of the public can put in submissions, and that's why we had uh, more than 10,000. So why did we change our mind? The main reason was that uh, our lawyers were able to reassure us that uh, it could be linked to the provision of the therapy. We were worried that if we just enabled the medicines to be available as medicines, that uh, people without the appropriate training, without the use of an appropriate therapeutic paradigm, 
could start using uh, psychedelics and it would set the field back negatively because people would be using them inappropriately and under an under lack of supervision. So the fact that uh, legally we were able to show that uh, uh, we could also enable there to be appropriate therapeutic paradigm was really the turning point. The other thing which was a less of an issue was emerging evidence. Uh, you know, as every year went by, there were two or three more pivotal research studies published that gave us greater confidence that for certain patients, these were uh, very valid treatments. This is interesting. Uh, yet public uh, comment, there, there was some opposition. And from what uh, you said, the media hyped this a bit and, uh, and perhaps uh, did not give the public accurate information. Well, it wouldn't be the first time in the world that the media hasn't given the public accurate information. So some of the media... Uh, interpreted this as approving the medicines that you could go and get them from your corner pharmacy and take them home and that there would be widespread use of these products without appropriate controls. And if anything, there are some very rigorous controls and the medicines are only to be used in a supervised clinical setting, not not to be taken home. At the clinic under the care of, a, of, a, of an approved psychiatrist. Exactly. Uh, so... There's no way in which the medicines and the current scheme can be taken home for use uh, without that clinical supervision. Okay, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to ask a couple more questions. Uh, one is the further uh, regulation at the state level. You indicated that the state of Victoria requires additional notification by prescribers' individual permits for drug-dependent patients, and uh, it's legally banned for use outside clinics. Um, are there any other states uh, with similar regulations? Uh, there are some other states that uh, require the patients that have had the uh, treatment to be advised to them. Uh, at least it seems to be at present that uh, the requirement is that it's notifying the states rather than requiring a separate sets of approval. But I think it also reflects a degree of nervousness. Uh, it's funny, some uh, people have criticised us for being too liberal, some people have criticised us for being too restrictive and too conservative, but that's the life of a regulator. And you said you know you're doing the right thing as a regulator when you get criticised. Uh, correct. Uh, wonderful. Dr. Scarrett, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you talking to us. Thanks, Lara. This is Larry Luxner reporting for AGM Live. Thank you for listening to AGM Live. Visit us online at endocannabinoidmedicine.com.